Well, open your Bible, if you have it there handy with you, to Matthew chapter 5, and let's spend at least the next 25 or 30 minutes looking at the next in our study of the Beatitudes. We have gone through these things uh, this second semester, and it seems as though we've had a little delay. It's been a few weeks since I've been able to be with you. I had a wonderful radio rally uh, Monday night in uh, Visalia. We had an awful lot of people there. Uh, Five people came up to me. Five young people at least said, I'm coming in the fall to the Master's College. One young man came up, by the way, Ron, and said that he was a trumpet player and he was coming here. Another girl came up and said she's a a flautist, plays the flute, and she was coming, and uh, they were all excited young people. So we had a great time just sharing the vision of the school with folks up there as well. Well, let's look then at the Matthew chapter 5 passage, the Beatitudes we've been examining. And I don't want to take the brief time we have to review, so I'll trust your memory. We've worked our way all the way down to verse 9. And we come to the next of the last in these Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, when you talk about peace, you talk about something that everybody's talking about. And I don't want to belabor the point, but it ought to be obvious to all of us that peace is a pursuit of men. Whether you're talking on a national level uh, or whether you're talking on a personal level, people pursue peace. They want tranquility in life. I mean, I think all of us in the last week or so have had a very heightened sense of the imminent potentiality of the annihilation of the world because of what's happened in Chernobyl. We all realize that one of these deals could blow up or some little man somewhere who has a screw loose punches one little red button and blows everybody into eternity. We all live in in the sort of fear of that nuclear disaster. Whether you're talking about it on that level or whether you're talking about the anxiety in human relationships that cause married people to know very little peace or moms and dads with their children knowing very little peace, you understand that everybody pursues peace. And uh, somebody defined peace as the, as the moment in history when everyone is reloading. Uh, we really have known very little... <laughs> We really have known very little about real peace. I remember in 1945, they founded the United Nations for the purpose of bringing world peace. And since that time, there has not been one day, one day in the history of the United Nations in which there has been world peace. Now, where are the peacemakers? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Where are they? Are we talking about kings and princes and rulers and presidents and statesmen? Are we talking about politicians and Nobel Prize winners and leagues of nations and members of the UN? Are we talking about some ecclesiastical order? Are we talking about a council of churches? Where and who are the peacemakers? That's a very, very important issue. Washington, you know, has uh, many monuments. Monuments are supposed to be to peace, and we find that we are sort of, in looking back at those monuments, prone to build one at the end of each war. And then the next war, we build another one, and it just never really seems to say anything about peace, but a whole lot about our inability to sustain peace. But there is, by God's grace, within the human race, the provision for peacemakers. They are not the politicians. They are not the rulers of the nations. They are those people who are, it says in verse 9, the sons of God. The sons of God are the true peacemakers. If we believe Webster's definition of a generation, and Webster says 33 years constitutes generally a generation, what are the chances that we're going to have a generation of peace? 
You will not remember, but I do, in 1970, when Richard Nixon was campaigning for the presidency of the United States, the theme of his campaign was this. We shall have a generation of peace, something we have never had in this nation. Nice thought, Richard. Nice thought. Didn't happen. And there was no peace in Richard Nixon's life either. Well, some people have said we have had two generations of peace, 1815 to 1846, 1865 about to 1900, but that's because they didn't count the Indian Wars, which were furiously going on and bloodying up our country. We have never had peace in this nation. We have never had peace in the world, and there really has never, had, there never has been peace in the human heart. And we can talk about peace like the prophets of old who said, peace, peace, but there really is no peace. Because peace belongs uniquely, and the making of peace belongs uniquely to those who are the sons of God. And that's what we want to look at as we look briefly at this beatitude. Let's ask some questions about it as we have about each one. First of all, what is the meaning of peace? When we talk about being a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers, what is the definition of peace that we're working with? And I want you to understand this. It's a very important biblical distinction. Most people would define peace as the absence of conflict. Most people would define it as the absence of war, uh, the absence of strife, the absence of argument, the absence of fighting, the absence of conflict. But God's definition of peace is far more than that. God's definition of peace is not the absence of anything. It is the presence of something. It is not what isn't there. It is what is there. Frankly, there's no strife in a, in a, in a cemetery. There's no conflict in a cemetery. But you could hardly use a cemetery as an example of true peace. It isn't the absence of something. It's the presence of something. And what it basically is in God's economy is the presence of positive goodness. It is the presence of positive righteousness. It is a state of bliss that comes about because men are committed to living according to the law of God. When two Jews meet, even to this day, in ancient times as well, but even today, two Jews meet, what do they say? Shalom. It means more than may you have no war, my brother. May you know the absence of conflict. That's not what it means. It means may God's goodness be the portion of your life. It is the presence of all that is good and all that makes life wonderful and fulfilling and happy. It is a force. Peace is not the absence of a force. It is the presence of a force and it is a force for goodness. It is aggressive goodness. Peacemaking doesn't mean creating a vacuum. It means bringing true goodness to bear. Let me follow that up a little bit. Um, let me talk about what peace is not. Peace, we need to understand if we're going to understand the beatitude. And we need to understand to begin with that peace is not the absence of conflict created by the evasion of an issue. There are people who, in the name of peace, just don't want to deal with truth, Right? I recently heard a sermon given by a man who said, when are Christians going to commit themselves to making peace and stop debating over issues? That's not how you get peace. That's how you avoid conflict. That's not the presence of peace. That's the absence of conflict. That's, that's the vacuum. That's not the presence of true goodness. There is a peace that is only a compromise. 
There is a peace that is only the evasion of an issue. There is a peace that is only an unwillingness to deal with truth. There is a peace that is a failure to stand for what is right. That's not the kind of peace we're talking about. The peace of the Bible is a peace based on what is right. That's why it says in the Psalms that righteousness and peace have what? You remember that? Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Because one doesn't exist without the other. The peace of the Bible does not evade issues. Did Jesus come into the world as a prince of peace? Did he? Sure he did. Now, were there any issues during his life on earth? Did he create conflict? All the time. Did he say, I am come not to bring peace, but what? The sword? You see, true peace is not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of righteousness and goodness created by the true resolution of the conflict. You can have peace with your neighbor. Let's say you've got a problem with your neighbor. Maybe your roommate. You can have peace, the peace of evasion, by just never talking about it. But you know what happens? There's no true relationship there. Is that not so? As long as the conflict is not uncovered and dealt with, you will always have a problem. And you will always have to evade a certain conversation, a certain topic, and you will always look at each other and know there's a barrier between the two of you. That is not peace. That is compromise. That is not the presence of goodness. That is the absence of conflict. That is the vacuum of nothingness. That's not the resolution. The peace of the Bible, then, faces an issue square and faces it head on and brings to bear upon it the truth of God and brings the resolution. It is not a cold war. Peace is not a cold war. It is, it is the resolution that comes at the end of the hot war. And you remember James 3.17? The wisdom that is from, from God or from above is first pure, then, what's the second word? Peaceable. That peace that comes out of purity. That peace that comes in kissing righteousness. And you have the same thing in Hebrews 12, 14. It says, follow peace with all men, listen to this, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Again, again, you have peace and holiness connected. And what I'm trying to say to you is that there are many people who would take the beatitude of peacemaking and they would use it to defend their compromise. They would use it to defend their unwillingness to stand for truth. They would use it to defend their unwillingness to confront an issue head on and bring the truth of God to bear on that thing and bring the end of conflict because you have brought the presence of God's truth. And in that you have true peace. That's the peace of reigning righteousness or the peace of reigning goodness. I want to avoid all needless strife, but there's a lot of strife I can't avoid because it's a matter of bringing the truth to bear. It's sometimes very costly. I will never have the motto, peace at any price, nor should you. We don't abandon our principles, and we don't abandon our doctrinal convictions, and we don't turn away from the Word of God just to create the absence of conflict. You confront an issue until the Word of God brings resolution to that issue, and then you have true peace, because you have the presence of truth and goodness. This is the real peace. Now, let me sum it up by simply saying this. True peace can only come when both parties accept the truth. True peace can only come when both parties accept the truth. You enter into conflict for truth. You fight against error. 
You fight against falsehood. You're not a peace breaker. You're a peacemaker. You're trying to bring true peace. He knows true peace. This person, this beatitude person, he knows true peace can only come when truth reigns and both parties agree to obey it. Now, that's the kind of peacemaker we want to be. We're not in the world as Christians. And you want to note this in your mind. We're not in the world as Christians to make or to create the absence of conflict at any cost. We're in the world to bring the true peace that comes when people agree to obey the word of God. To put it simply, let's say that I have someone close to me who does not know Christ. Do I make peace with that issue? And never bring up anything to cause him to be concerned or to ruffle his feathers or to violate the quote-unquote peace we have in our relationship. Not if I'm true to Scripture, right? What am I going to do? I'm going to disrupt the tranquility of our relationship long enough to confront him about his what? His sin and lostness. It has to be. The kind of peace I want with that man on his way to hell is not the peace of the absence of conflict. It is the peace that comes when both of us have come to the same understanding of God and His truth. So understand to begin with then that the peace that the Lord is talking about here is not the peace of the absence of something, but the peace of the presence of true righteousness. Now, that is basically the definition of peace that I want you to keep in your mind. Let me take you to a second thought here. And if we said that's the meaning of peace, let's look at the menace to peace. What is it that would disrupt this? Frankly, it's as simple as unrighteousness, sin. And it is the sin of compromise, as I said. Usually what menaces true peace is sin and even can be the sin of compromise. Obviously, sin causes conflict in every relationship. But it is also a sin to avoid the real issue and compromise. So if we're going to create true peace, we have to deal with what? Sin. If I'm having a conflict with you, you're a Christian brother or sister, and I'm having a conflict with you, and there's no peace in our relationship, then there's sin there that has to be dealt with, right? I mean, this is simple stuff. Just deal with the sin. And it might even be that if you never deal with that sin, you'll create another sin, and that's a sin of, of, of sort of easy peace, which never really deals with the true issue. Now, let's go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes and just get a little bit of a feeling for what is behind this matter of sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the people who acknowledge their sin and moral bankruptcy before God. And then they mourn. And because of their sinfulness and the mourning of their hearts, there's a humility and a meekness and a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. And then because they are in so desperate need of mercy themselves, they tend to be very merciful to others. And the desire that is deepest within them is to experience purity of heart. Now, therein lies the definition of a person who has a great sense of his own what? Sinfulness. Sinfulness. You always confront sin before you get to peace in verse 9. You always have to recognize what is missing in your life. And true peace is menaced by sin. And until sin is dealt with, peace can't be there. I'm talking about 
peace between you and God. You can't resolve that without getting sin dealt with. Peace between you and someone else. You can't resolve that without dealing with sin. You can't, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, you can't have peace with an unbeliever until you've been honest enough, unless you have a very cold heart to confront the sin in their life, right? I mean, if you wanted to have a true relationship of peace with a non-believer, you'd take him the gospel first. If you want to have true peace with your brother and sister, you've got to be honest about your sin and sometimes confrontive about their sin as well. So peace with God then has to deal with sin. Now, maybe a couple of perspectives. As you look at the problem of sin and making peace in your life, you've got to recognize a new view of yourself. You have to see yourself as a sinner. And I know it's something I try to cultivate in my own life. If there's a conflict, and you know, when you have a lot of human relations and a lot of activities, there often is a conflict. But wherever there might be a conflict, the first thing I want to do is examine my own heart. I want to look at myself and say, like Paul did, oh, wretched man that I am. The first thing I want to admit to God is that it might just be my fault. Fair enough? I mean, I have to start there. I recently was in a conference... And I preached, and a lady wrote me a letter. Seems like about, oh, every few months or so, I get a letter from somebody that pulls me up short and helps me re-examine whether my priorities are right. And this lady was, if, if, if I could have seen her, I know her ears would have been red. She was really hot. I mean, she was furious. And the letter said, I just heard you speak at a conference, and she said, um, you spoke on such and such and such and such, and I spoke about ten times there, and in one message that I gave, she said, you referred to something that I once heard on one of your tapes. How dare you do that? Don't you have any fresh experience with God? If you were walking with the Lord, you'd have something new to say. Well, she went on for two pages like this. So, you know, your, your flesh says to you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> out of my life, lady, right? And then the second thing your flesh says is, oh, God, am I glad I'm not married to her. <laughs> I mean, that's a fleshly response. And I, I, I got to admit, that was basically part of my thinking at the time. Deliver that poor husband that must drive her around and listen to this all day long. Because if I'm a stranger and I get it, only heaven knows what someone close gets. But anyway, I thought about all that. And then I sort of said to the Lord, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? If I want to have peace with this lady, if I want to be a peacemaker in this situation of intense conflict from her end, then maybe the, th the place to start is to examine my own heart. That's something I've tried to teach myself to do. And so I basically wrote her a letter and just said, if there was any failure in my own heart to be sensitive to what God was saying to me, uh, I just want to seek his forgiveness and yours. And I think that's a very healthy way to approach those kind of things. And even though you work through the other very normal stuff, because the, and then I, by the way, I sent her a whole bunch of free tapes and said, here, I hope you can find something you haven't heard before, you know, um, <laughs> But the thing that I want to do is take a good look at my own life. Whenever there's conflict in a situation, I want to look at my own heart. And I said to her in the letter, thank you for helping me examine whether there's integrity in my own ministry. That's where peacemaking starts. You have to take a new view of yourself. And when you've come to know Jesus Christ, you do know that you're a sinner. 
and that there are going to be times when conflicts exist because of you. And the second thing you want to do is take a new view of others. You want to take a new view of others, and the view you take of others is a view of mercy and a view of pity because they're fighting the same battles you're fighting, and if they're having problems struggling with sin in their life, it's not anything new to you because you're doing the same thing, right? This is the spirit of a peacemaker. Conflict only causes him to look inside and to be pitiful and merciful and gracious and kind and thoughtful to someone else who's struggling in the flesh just like you are and try to understand that. And then I think thirdly, take a new view of the Lord. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then everything is for His glory. So if there's conflict, you know it doesn't bring Him glory. And if you get defensive, that doesn't bring Him glory either. That just sets you up as the one being offended. Instead of that, think of God being offended. And do everything you can to eliminate the offense to God. Don't worry about yourself. I, I don't ever want to defend myself. In fact, I won't defend myself. If you write me a letter and criticize me like that lady did, I won't defend myself. All I'll do is thank her for that and ask her to forgive me. I don't want to defend myself because I'm not the issue. All I, all I want to do is defend the Lord. All I want to do is make sure that he's not dishonored by some conflict. And so whatever might be the posture to take in a conflict that would allow God to be the, glory, the one receiving the glory, that would help you to recognize your own sinfulness and someone else's weakness is the role of a peacemaker. Self isn't the issue. Self-defense isn't the issue. Whether you are offended isn't the issue. Realize that you're sinful. Other people are. God is the one to receive the glory. And so do all you can to resolve the conflict for the glory of the Lord, taking no thought for your own self. Very basic. So, the meaning of peace, present, positive righteousness, the menace, is sin. And has to be dealt with and has to be recognized. Let me ask a third question. What is the source of peace? Well, we know that. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 14, 33? God is not the author of confusion, but of what? Peace. All peace comes from God. He's called the God of peace. Paul writing 2 Thessalonians called him the God of peace. He's called the Lord of peace. The writer of Hebrews again calls him the God of peace. All peace comes from from God. So we're not talking about human tranquility. We're not talking about human relationships here. We're talking about divine ones. We're talking about a supernatural peace that comes from God. That the human peace is the absence of conflict. The supernatural peace is the presence of righteousness. And the only people who will know that peace are people in whose heart the Lord resides and wherein he can present his peace. When Christ comes into your life, the presence of peace is a possibility. It's a reality. It is that right relationship to God that causes us to have right relationships to other people. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, 11, one of my favorite verses, it says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, and they are thoughts of peace. If you want to have peace with God, much more does God want to have peace with you. And when you give your life to Christ, you enter into a peace relationship with him. You become potential peacemakers to touch the lives of everyone else. And really, those are the basic things that, that we would need to understand. We become, by knowing God, the messengers of peace. The messengers of peace. What do I mean by that? Well, 1 Corinthians 7.15 says God has called us to peace. In what way? Well, let's just sum it up in three ways. One, to make peace with God. 
And when you do that, you are then able to help others make peace with God. That's evangelism. And then thirdly, you're able to make peace with others. That's uh, fellowship and exhortation. So we are peacemakers in three ways. We make peace with God. We help others make peace with God. And we keep peace with ourselves. We endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit, Paul says to the Ephesians, in the bond of peace. This is what I believe marks and characterizes a true believer. Because as I've said all along, I think the Beatitudes are those things that identify true Christians. Who are the peacemakers? Those who have peace with God. Those who assist others to have peace with God. And those who have the capability because God dwells in them to make peace with each other. How is that peace made? Recognizing sin in me. And knowing it might well be my fault, recognizing sin in them and being merciful and gracious and kind and forgiving toward their weaknesses, I'd be toward my own and seeking not to justify myself or to make things right for me, but to bring a peace that brings glory to Jesus Christ. That's the presence of positive righteousness. And there's a price to pay. Let me be practical for a minute. How do you do that? I used to tell people all the time, if you want to make peace with somebody with whom you're having a quarrel, give them something of great value to you. Just give them something. Give them a gift that is very valuable. Or write them a letter that is very personal. In some way, when you give something of value to someone, you say, possess this for me because it means so much to me. I put it in your care because I trust you. I trust that you love me enough to care for the valuable thing I've given you. Very practical. If you want to be the peacemaker, it's kind of like building a bridge. I was reading some years ago about how bridges are built. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Uh, the little description I, I read went like this. The builders start with a solid structure on each side of the body of water they want to span. Then a thin little cable is sent across, securely fastened at one side and secured at the other side. This becomes the basis for the bridge. A thin little cable starting from one side eventually connected at both ends. And that's really how you make peace. You build a bridge to somebody. And how do you do it? By just making some connection. You initiate that connection that's hooked on both sides. And then everything starts moving across that cable. Once you've got one cable, you can pull something across with the cable. And you can pull another cable. And everything starts moving on that one thin little cord. And that's how a peacemaker works. A peacemaker doesn't sit back and say, I'm really ticked. At the way that person treated me or whatever they did to me. No, the, the person who is the peacemaker pursues the building of the bridge. Pursue the peace. Don't be defensive. Don't be self-justifying. Don't give excuses. Don't look to continue the root of bitterness, as the writer of Hebrews calls it. Start to build the bridge. You made your peace with God through Christ. You have the capacity to teach other people how to make peace with God through Christ. You're a peacemaker, and so in all your relationships, and all my relationships, I want to bring to those relationships positive goodness. Sometimes it means I have to confront sin. Sometimes it means I have to go through conflict because I don't want to compromise. But always I will be the bridge builder. Always I will be the initiator. Always I will pursue the peacemaking. So very important. And the ultimate reason, as I said, is because it brings glory to God. Well, notice finally what he says, and I don't even have time. I've abbreviated everything. But look at the last part. He says the peacemakers will be called the sons of God. What he means by that is true children of God. He uses the word weas here, which is sons rather than techno, which is children, to, to um, 
to really emphasize affection. Weas is a word of affection. The children of God or the sons of God are marked as being peacemakers. And again, we go back to what we've said all along. If you're not a peacemaker, if that's not in your mind to do, then you have to examine yourself, number one, to see if you're a Christian. Number two, to see if you're living the way a Christian ought to live. We're called to be peacemakers. Christians are those who are bankrupt in their spirit. They are those who know they're sinful. They are those who weep over their sinfulness, those who are humble before God. They are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are those whose lives are marked by mercy and purity of heart. And they are peacemakers. By definition, they are the peacemakers. The mark of a true Christian is one who seeks peace for the glory of Christ and the unity of his church and fellowship. That's how we are recognizable. And what a wonderful testimony that is to the world when we pursue peace. Initiate the resolution. Sometimes it's painful, as I said, but always we should be the initiators. Practice this. Maybe before the school year is over, as you come to an end, you can think in your minds of some people, maybe in your own dorm area, maybe around the campus, Maybe on the staff or the faculty. Maybe another student. Maybe somebody you've worked with or for. Maybe somebody at home. And there's the need to make some peace. There's a conflict. And that conflict has smoldered. And maybe you've thought, well, I'm a peacemaker because I don't talk about it. Well, I'm a peacemaker because, boy, we're not having conflict. I avoid that guy or that girl. That isn't peace. That's a cold war. That's not peace. Peace is when you confront it, recognize your own sin, be merciful and gracious to the one who may have, may have sinned against you, and for the glory of the Lord, you bring the harmony of the presence of true righteousness and a right relationship. And therein lies the role of the peacemaker. And also, I want to add, as you go home this summer, you know, all the temptations are going to be there. Now you're going to go back to the old environment and all the stuff that's there. Go back with this in mind that I want God to use me as a peacemaker in two ways to help others make peace with God and to make peace with all those that are in my life where there may be some conflict what a good mission that would be wouldn't it for the summer let's have a word of prayer together Father we've just basically touched on the wonderful responsibility you've given us be peacemakers and we're so thankful because you have not called us to do something we are not able to do but you've given us in Christ the peace with which we make peace we thank you Father for first of all making peace with us we thank you that our feet are shod with the proper preparation and that is the gospel of peace we have peace with you we are at peace we have stepped into your righteousness and there is an intimacy and a communion that is unbroken and unhindered. We thank you for the peace we have with you. And we pray, O oh God, that we might endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with each other. And Lord, that we might lead others to peace with you. Even if it means a momentary conflict over sin to be resolved. Help us to stand true to make peace the way Jesus did and use us for your glory even today in Christ's name Amen God bless you have a good day